Hey, Rachel, what's the Vanisher's deal? You mean, aside from the vanishing? Uh, Yeah, he started out as a Silver Age villain, right? Right, he fought the X-Men way back in their second issue, and then Professor X wiped his mind. Well, that seems harsh. Well, the Silver Age. He showed up again on and off after that, ran around with Factor 3, fought the champions, teamed up with Nightcrawler, and briefly became a god in another dimension. And then there was the whole Fallen Angels thing, where he played Fagin to a bunch of mutant runaways. Well, he'd been doing that on and off long before, though. That's how Boom Boom met up with X-Factor, remember? Oh, yeah. Didn't he reform for a while, though? Much later? Not voluntarily. He'd stolen a bunch of samples of the legacy virus from Mr. Sinister's lab, and X-Force needed him to help them track it down, so to ensure his compliance, they had Elixir give him an inoperable brain tumor. Yeah, seriously? In the shape of the X-Men logo. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 58th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this is actually our first episode that we're recording with our new producer in our new studio, while we're currently being produced by Kyle Yount, who's the host of Kaiju Cast. Also, we have been listening to a Danger Zone Pandora station all the way here, so we're just like super psyched about everything today. But um, as Miles said, first episode in a new studio with a new producer, so if we sound a little bit different, that's why. Please bear with us the transition. Yeah, I do want to say that um, this studio, we are surrounded by like dozens, if not hundreds, of giant monster statues and toys and stuff, and so it's both a little intimidating and very exciting. Also, there's a really, really excellent Shiba Inu asleep by my left foot. That's never a bad thing. So, what are we covering today? Well, today we're going to be looking at two really marvelous miniseries from the mid-1980s. The first one that we're going to look at is from shortly before where we are in continuity, and that is the 1985 Nightcrawler miniseries by Dave Cockrum. The second goes back a little bit further. It's from 1984. And it is the obscure and deeply, deeply weird Iceman miniseries. Yeah, now I'd read Nightcrawler before. Uh, The big cache of comics that my father gave me ages ago included the Nightcrawler miniseries. Iceman I hadn't even heard of until we started doing the research for this podcast. But we managed to track it down. Uh, If you can, um, go for it. Good luck. I don't think either of these series is collected or on Marvel Unlimited, but they are out there. Yeah, they are floating around the back issue bins of the universe. Yes, indeed. So I think we're going to go in reverse chronological order. So let's go ahead and start with Nightcrawler. Okay, Nightcrawler came out in late 1985. This is immediately before the X-Men headed to Asgard. And these were pretty dark times, which makes it a really startling contrast. It was written and drawn by Dave Cockrum, who's best known as the X-Men series artist from 1975 to 1977, and then again from 81 to 83. And Nightcrawler was Cockrum's very favorite character. Right. We've talked about this before, but whoever the artist is on X-Men, you can kind of tell who their favorite is. You'd see a lot of Nightcrawler when Cockrum was drawing. You'd see a lot of Wolverine when Byrne was drawing. And Cockrum is just a hell of a lot of fun, so it sort of makes sense that Nightcrawler is his. And this series, in a lot of ways, I think is a return to the tone of his first run in particular. Yeah, um, the feel of it is very old school, very like, you know, fun, dashing, lightweight adventure before all the doom and gloom of the 80s at the time. Now, story-wise, this is hinged on a hook from Bizarre Adventures number 27, a comic that came out in 1981 in which Nightcrawler and the Vanisher teamed up. They ended up on a dimension-hopping adventure together, and honestly, that's really all you need to know about that, is that there was a thing with the well at the center of time, and they fell into it. Yeah, if you're talking about obscure issues that are hard to find, like Nightcrawler is kind of hard to find, Bizarre Adventures number 27, good luck. Yeah, you can find a summary of this particular story, I believe, on the Marvel Wikia, but that is the only place I've ever actually run across it. Now, this also references another previous X-Men story. 
It does. It references X-Men number 153. And that, as you may recall, is Kitty's fairy tale. This is the bedtime story that Kitty comes up with for then six-year-old Ilyana Rasputin um, and tells her that has sort of fantasy allegories of all of the current X-Men um, and is kind of a happy ending retelling of the Dark Phoenix saga. If you're not familiar with that, or if you just want to look back, we actually covered it in episode 28 with Greg Rucka. So we have a bizarre adventure story with the Well at the Center of Time and the Vanisher, and we have Kitty's Fairy Tale. That kind of tells me something about the tone of this miniseries before I even start reading it. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that we'd put off this miniseries for so long is that in my head, at least, it was very much paired with Excalibur, to which I think it's really the most direct spiritual precursor. Yeah, it's got this kind of uh, this light, very humorous feel to it. I mean, you know, your mileage may vary as to whether the humor lands, but that's definitely the intention. Yeah, it's just pure fun. And again, it's a time where the X-Men are very continuity heavy and very dark. And here's just this four issue romp. Yeah. With all of that said, let's dive into Nightcrawler. So we start, as one does, in the danger room, and Kurt is training specifically in a session where he's not allowed to use teleportation. Yeah, Kitty Pride and Liana Rasputin are in the control booth of the danger room, sort of running the thing. And afterward, Ilyana's like, well, why are you training without your teleportation? And Kurt says, well, this one time in Bizarre Adventures number 27, I couldn't teleport because of all this weird stuff. And he decides that he's going to describe the well at the center of time, and based on his description, which we don't see... Kitty manages to reproduce it perfectly, which seems like something that A, is pretty improbable, but B, also happens an awful lot. Like, this happened with Limbo a few months previously, didn't it? It's true. I feel like Kitty Pride has an alternate career as a uh, police description artist. She would be amazing at it. A danger room description artist. But the catch with the well at the center of time is that you can't just make a facsimile of it. The actual well shows up, a tentacle monster comes out, starts to grab Lockheed, and as Nightcrawler tries to fight it off, pulls him in. Right. Kitty and Ilyana are just sitting there like, wait, what? Huh? How? So that happened. So Nightcrawler finds himself in this really bizarre alternate land, which is very, very Dave Cockrum art. Man, I feel like this whole series, Dave Cockrum is riffing on classic Weird Tales sword and sorcery. And so we start with Kurt landing on this squid monster that's floating like a blimp through the sky with an airship passing by. Yeah, and so, you know, he and Lockheed uh, managed to fight the monster off, at which point they're just sort of dangling in the sky, carried by Lockheed's wings, and get pulled aboard this pirate ship. Well, Kurt teleports them aboard because they're starting to fall, and while Lockheed can make a valiant effort to keep them aloft, I mean, he is a really small dragon. Yeah, it's his traditional sword and sorcery-looking pirate ship thing. There's, like, this high magic and uh, really fancy outfits and swords, and, and the pirates aren't exactly human. They, like, have orange skin with pointy ears. And I think it's important here to distinguish between sword and sorcery and high fantasy, because they're totally different. It is, and this is solidly in the realm of sword and sorcery. This is the land of Robert E. Howard, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Frank Frazetta. There will be swashes buckled, maidens rescued, and presumably saucy hijinks off-panel and between panels, since we're still under the Comics Code Authority. Yeah, yeah, we're not talking like elves and dwarves and stuff. We're talking more, you know, airships and monsters. On this marvelous, marvelous air pirate ship, everyone immediately turns on Kurt because A, he's just shown up, and B, because they think that he is something called a boggy, which is a term I have encountered in only one place, and that is Harvard Lampoon's Board of the Rings. I love that book so much. I read it so many times when I was a kid. You lent me that book in eighth grade English. I did indeed. But, you know, Kurt's a charming dude, so he's like, hey, it's cool, I'm not a boggy, I'm awesome instead. And they're like, well, okay, you are pretty awesome. And he ends up joining the pirate crew and having a really good time, and he teaches them poker, and they're all, you know, avasting me hardiesing. But the problem with joining a pirate crew when you're basically a fan of pirates as shown in movies is that eventually you are going to come face to face with some actual pirating because that's how pirates make a living. 
Right. And so, you know, there's this royal barge, which is uh, housing the Jinjay Sabri, who's basically the queen of this area. And they're like, hey, let's take that out and kidnap her and ransom her because we're pirates and that's what we do. And Kurt's like, oh, hell no, this just stopped being fun. He turns the pirate ship's guns back onto them and threatens to basically take down the entire ship and then teleports away to the royal barge. Yeah, at which point they're like, oh, look, it's a boggy. And he's like, people are going to be calling me a boggy a lot, aren't they? They are. It is going to be a running joke through the entire miniseries, Nightcrawler, so you'd better get used to it. Yeah, and so he uh, meets up with the Jinjay, the the princess, and he's like, hey, I'm Nightcrawler, I'm very charming, and her guards are like, no way, Boggy, get away from her. And she's like, aww, but he's got a tail and stuff. Come on. Right, and so they head back to the city of Bel Ami Anora, which is, you know, the, the royal city, which, man, it's got the same aesthetic as everything else. It's all, like, gas bags and bubbles and spires and curves and colors. It's very much Dave Cockrum. Like, the guy that designed the Star Jammers, yeah, that's this guy. Yeah, and again, it's so much a love letter to classic sword and sorcery fantasy. If you've got any fond memories of that stuff... Every page of this series is there for you. Or if you just appreciate really ridiculous stuff, especially as the series goes on. Right. Now, once they get to the city, Nightcrawler storms off in a huff after the princess's guards try to pay him off for the rescue, you know, saying that his alliances aren't paid, they're given. As he leaves, someone else runs up to tell the guards that the princess has been abducted, but Nightcrawler by now is already caught in another bit of intrigue. Yeah, so he himself uh, gets pulled off to the side by a woman who's like, hey, you need to help us out. We're in a lot of trouble. And he's like, I'll help you because I'm a good dude. But it turns out it's Trap, and it's really just the pirates who he messed up the ship of who are capturing him again, who then proceed to sell him to a wizard. A shark wizard! That's really important. This is not just any wizard. This dude is a shark wizard. He is. In a tiny loincloth. Yes, uh, very much, you know, a Conan-style wizard, uh, visually. And this dude is named Shagreen, and he captures Nightcrawler and ties him to a thing, and Nightcrawler can't teleport away. Now, at this point, we are in issue two, whose title is A Boggy Day in La Undun Un. And I'm which... pretty sure they named La Undun Un just so they could make that pun in the title. I don't think there's any other reason. It's that kind of series, guys. I mean, I think that's true of pretty much every title and every single location in it. This whole thing is a very, very self-aware series of winks and nods. You know, we drop the word delight a lot just in terms of things we really enjoy and i think this is a series singularly suited to it because yeah it's just charming it really is and especially if you like the happy-go-lucky swashbuckly nightcrawler which is to say if you're most x fans like this is going to be right up your alley now again chagrin has cast a spell preventing kurt from teleporting and kurt realizes this because not only can he not teleport but his attempted teleport sound effect has changed from bamf to poot and i love this this is like this is I guess chronologically the first time, but on the show the second time, that we've seen Kurt identify a crisis by reading the sound effects. Right, because there was that whole splang thing with Arcade's truck. Right, and you know, this makes me wonder, and actually the tone of this series does as well, I really, really wish that Marvel had decided to take Nightcrawler more in the She-Hulk direction and made him a more fourth-wall-aware character, because I think he's one who would have been suited really well to that. Yeah, now to clarify that She-Hulk, not Deadpool. Important distinction. I said She-Hulk. Right. I'm just clarifying to the listeners. Well, they're very, very different, and I mean, I think She-Hulk is tonally a much better match for Nightcrawler if we're looking for direct analogs. Actually, they should just be best friends. They should have silly fourth-wall-aware adventures together. I love this plan. So, anyway, Nightcrawler's busy being imprisoned and being kind of mad at the world because, you know, A, he got sucked into a parallel dimension, and B, he can't even swashbuckle because he's all, you know, bound in these weird metal shackles. Luckily for him, who should show up but the very creatures that he has been repeatedly mistaken for, namely Boggies. Boggies are basically miniature Nightcrawlers with bat wings. Yeah, they look kind of like uh, if Nightcrawler was a kid and had bat wings. Their manner of speech is very strange. There's a lot of yes, yes. So I always imagined them, you know, sort of like hissing and grinning as they said everything. 
Yeah, they are pleasantly ridiculous. And I mean, as as are a lot of species. And actually, I think Cockrum does a fairly good job distinguishing them from the Banffs who show up later and who are also tiny and ridiculous nightcrawlers. But the Boggy's deal is that this wizard Chagrin has been kidnapping them and he wants to find out the magic behind teleportation. His plan at this point is to dissect Kurt. And he's got the Boggies captured, but he can't get to them because they can travel through mirrors and they actually live behind mirrors. And at this point, this is where I really concluded that I want a vacation home in Dave Cockrum's mind. Yeah, that would be amazing. Also dangerous, but everything would always work out. Right, it would be super awesome. You know, there would be a lot of peril, but pretty much all of it would be countered by last-minute saves. I mean, I'm just going to say, I'm looking at my outline right here, and one of the notes I wrote was in all capital letters, HIGH ADVENTURE MOTHERFUCKERS, and I stand behind that. Yeah, I mean, that pretty much covers it. So, they are in similar straits, and they tell him so in somewhat more colorful English than I'll use here. We'll let you go, but you have to stop Chagrin. You have to break his power source, which is going to be an object that's on him. You know, the actual storyline of this isn't that interesting. It's a very, very classic gimmick. He has a power source you have to break that'll undo his spell. He's got giant guardians that you have to figure out a way to get past. And a lot of the charm of it, for me at least, isn't in the actual events. It's not in the story. It's in the tone. Absolutely. Speaking of tropes, uh, Chagrin has also kidnapped the princess, who he plans to sacrifice to his god in order to increase his power. Yeah, that is Cthulhu Garath, who's clearly a uh, mix between, of course, Cthulhu from Lovecraft and Shuma Gorath from Robert E. Howard, who is also a major Marvel character for a long time, and in one of the Marvel vs. Capcom fighting games, weirdly you enough. You mean Shuma Garath was, not Robert E. Howard, although that would have been amazing. Oh, jeez. God, he, he should be a fighting game character. He should totally be a fighting game character. He could use fisticuffs and insecurity. I mean, we're talking about a man who had all of his pants tailored three inches short so they wouldn't get in his way if someone jumped him in the street. That's true. So there you go. Perfect. Long story short, the good guys win. Nightcrawler smashes the power source, which is, of course, the crystal at the end of Shagreen's staff, and rescues the Jinjay, the princess. Meanwhile, back in 616, Kitty and Ileana are still trying to figure out where the hell Kurt went. They're trying to figure out how to get him back. Kitty finally manages to sort of get a fix on him, but she doesn't quite get a fix on all of him, so she just pulls back his costume. So then it cuts back to where Kurt is talking to the princess, and she's like, how did you do that? And can you do it again? But unfortunately, there's not much time for Nightcrawler uh, hot, sweet love and shenanigans because he gets teleported away again, uh, presumably as a result of what Kitty and Ilyana are doing. So I actually I want to I want to go back to that because I had a conversation with Chris Claremont long, long, long ago um, in which he mentioned something that's always stuck with me, which is that the key to a classic Nightcrawler story is almost getting the girl. I will totally buy that. And that's very much on display here. Yeah. So. Where do they pull him off to other than issue three? In fact, they pull him off to the world of Kitty's fairy tale. For those of you playing along at home, this is Earth 5311. Whether or not the previous stuff takes place in the same world and it just teleports him across space is never really explored, but there are no overlapping characters aside from Nightcrawler between those segments, so I assume it's a different universe. Well, you know, and the bad guy that shows up, of course. Well. So yeah, Earth 5311. It's a charming, charming world. I mean, you know, it's based on this bedtime story that Kitty was telling little girl Ayana after she'd been through some horrible shit, and so it's just fun. Everything about it is fun. So let's do a brief recap back through the Kitty's fairy tale characters, or at least the ones who show up in here, because a couple of them are missing. I think the Scott Jean and Professor X analogs don't make it into this story. We'll start with the central characters of Kitty's fairy tale, the first being Kitty herself as Pirate Kitty. We also have Peter Rasputin as Colossus, her true love. And Storm as the genie, who's kind of a weather goddess creature. 
Logan, Wolverine, as the fiend with no name who does, in fact, have a name, which is mean with two E's, although it's mean with an A in this series. And uh, the SR-71 Blackbird itself is Lockheed the Dragon. Now, this was the first time the name Lockheed was ever used. When Kitty met, like, actual purple dragon Lockheed in the main universe, she named it after the dragon she had in this story. Now, in the original fairy tale, there was also a Nightcrawler analog, and those were the Banffs. And that is who he encounters as soon as he arrives on Earth-5311. Now, the Banths are basically tiny nightcrawlers who are really into the ladies. They're like sort of chibi, plushy nightcrawlers. They're basically evil sex smurfs. That's a surprisingly accurate way of describing them. Well, not not evil. They're terrible sex smurfs. They are maybe. terrible sex smurfs. Like, they even live in mushroom houses. Uh-huh. And I've just exhausted the full extent of my smurf knowledge. But yeah, so this Banff meets Nightcrawler, and he's like, hey, Daddy Banff! And Nightcrawler's like, wait, what? And the Banff is like, well, you're roughly four times our size and you look like us, therefore you must be our daddy. And Kurt immediately accepts this as a logical explanation, which I think is kind of remarkable. He's a good-natured dude. I guess. Another thing that they run into as the Banff is taking the daddy Banff to their village called Banff, but with two Fs. Of course. So again, Smurf analogs. They pass by this little uh, sort of fairy creature, this little female form. And Nightcrawler's like, what's that? And the Banff is like, oh, you know, that's a peony. Because ElfQuest references. Yeah, and that was actually referenced in the first Kitty's fairy tale issue. We see one of these fairies. They're called preservers in ElfQuest, and they're referred to as peonies. That's P-I-N-I, not the plural of penis. And actually, we know that Kitty is an ElfQuest fan because she runs around in an ElfQuest t-shirt a lot in her early appearances. That she does. Anyway, Shagreen shows up at this point and teleports away with all of the Banffs but the first one Nightcrawler encountered, who is going to continue to be his guide through this weird, weird world. Yeah, and I should point out, so the tone of this series really changes halfway through. We have this, the sword and sorcery stuff of issues one and two, but once Nightcrawler gets to Earth 5311, it becomes way wackier and way more cartoony and I think way more enjoyable. I feel like it kind of shifts from Robert E. Howard on a good day to Rankin and Bass on really mellow acid. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. So they decide that they're going to summon someone to help. Uh, Shagreen is going somewhere called the Fangs of Doom. They can't get there, but the Bamp has a big, enormous horn he can blow to summon a guide. Unfortunately, it also summons someone else. And, you know, there's like this sort of rumbling and then this big whirlwind like bursts out of the ground. And it's Mean, the fiend with no name from Kitty's fairy tale. Now... The Fiend with no name is basically Wolverine if Wolverine were as wide as he was tall, chomped on cigars literally, and wore a tiny hat and was just terrible. He's basically the Looney Tunes version of Wolverine. Yeah, he's very Tasmanian devil and also hilarious. He's probably my favorite character from this world. Also, his name is spelled wrong in this miniseries. Uh, well, spelled differently. With an a. Oh, continuity. Wrong. What are you, an X-Men fan? Miles, this is what we do. <laughs> yes, it is. This is who we are. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he makes a reference to, you know, taking a wrong turn at Albuquerque. They're totally playing off the Looney Tunes thing here, like super overtly. And uh, eventually the person the Banff was trying to summon while well, the entity shows up, and that is Lockheed the Dragon, a giant, giant purple dragon. And Dragon Lockheed takes them to Pirate Kitty's ship, the Abdullah Hazred. Which may be a name that is familiar to you if you have read, for instance, the works of H.P. Lovecraft, because that is the dude who wrote the Necronomicon. Just references after references after references. Cockrum seems to be trying to compete with Claremont for sheer volume of references. Also, I mean, hot damn, Pirate Kitty, is there something that you might maybe want to tell us about your ship? Is there like, you know, some kind of inverted pentagram in the hold and various corpses of the people you've sacrificed? Well, it never comes we up. We are talking about Eliana Rasputin's best friend. Eh, good point. So you never know. So, yeah, they go off, uh, you know, adventuring, trying to save the Bams because they're like, well, we're all heroes. This is a world that operates on whimsy and adventure. Sure. What the hell? 
Now, they make their way to Chagrin's hideout. They lose Big Lockheed along the way. Uh, he gets attacked and ends up going underwater. Yeah, he gets attacked by this uh, sort of octopus thing and says, Every man for himself. Some filthy blatherskite spot me tail. I love the way everyone talks. Lockheed the dragon talks in a Claremont Irish accent, which is really weird. And I think as of this story, I don't remember him doing that in 153, did he? I don't know, but I think it's more of a pirate accent. You know, he speaks pirate. Okay, I'll give him that. And I'm much, much more inclined to forgive the silly accents in this because everything is silly and everything's cartoony. And so, of course, the accents are all silly. Right. So, yeah, they get to uh, the Fangs of Doom and they're attacked by various monsters, but manage to fight their way through and get to the top of the Fangs of Doom to the entrance. And they make their way, you know, up a staircase with signs, you know, abandon hope all ye who enter here except Tuesdays and Thursdays, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. And, I mean, Dave Cockrum is so delightful because he's doing this hardline genre riff and ridiculousness and cartoonishness, and he's also very genre-aware, and he's also making fun of himself a lot as he goes. And basically, this series is delightful, and Dave Cockrum is delightful, and there is nothing I don't love about it. Right. And so, you know, as this is all going on, not as much time has passed in the real world as as in the worlds that Nightcrawler has been in, but they're frantically trying to get him back, so they're like, all right, I think we have a fix on him. Let's try teleporting with that signature to here. Nope, they get a bamf. And the Bamp just shows up and gets in their face and is like, Hot dog! Girls! Count the Bamp's loving arms, baby cakes! Bamps are terrible. Now, they're going to try this again later. They figure out, okay, there are a bunch of tiny things. This must be Bamps. But there is something larger, too, and that is Dark Bamps. This is a roughly, like, 20-foot-tall Bamp in Dark Phoenix colors. Yeah, so it's this big cartoony character, but it's all orange and red and, and terrifying, you know, ish. And he manages to kick the crap out of the heroes, and they all get imprisoned by Chagrin again. Right. Um, now, there's a brief incident in which the Dark Bamf gets teleported away, too, because after getting the tiny one, Kitty and Ileana decide, well, okay, clearly there's more running around. Let's just lock onto the largest Nightcrawler-looking signal we can find, which turns out to be the Dark Bamf. And so they teleport him in. He rages a bit. They teleport him back. And, you know, Chagrin berates him for disappearing after he returns, and he responds, well, Dark Bamf only pawn in Game of Life. It's ridiculous and great. Meanwhile, the Banff has stumbled across a room full of prisoners, and these are specifically the Lady Banffs. Yeah, and so they're, you know, feminine, slightly taller versions of Nightcrawler, a little less uh, super deformed and plushy. Well, slightly taller than the other Banffs. They're not taller than Nightcrawler. They're all about new level. Yeah, and it turns out female Banffs are just as both awesome and terrible as male Banffs. Yeah, they basically spend the rest of the series yelling and hitting on Nightcrawler. So, you I, know, I can't same blame MO. Them. And yeah, so the Banff is like, hey, we got to save everybody. And they're all about it because they're still pissed about being kidnapped. And there's just this like this chorus of uh, what they're all going to do to Chagrin when they find him. Let's punch his ticket. Check his hat. Cancel his reservations. Press his pants. Kick his bucket. Rotate his tires. And there is chaos. They break out. They break everything. They hit on Nightcrawler. Chagrin zaps everybody. And then we get Windrider, who is Aurora's um, analog in this. She is a genie. She controls the elements. And she shows up. This big melee continues with everybody fighting everybody. Kitty manages to project herself. Sort of this big image of her head is like the Wizard of Oz telling them all to stop. And it's just this ridiculous giant fight. But eventually, Kurt does manage to break the new object of power Chagrin has. Which is the other end of his staff. Shakreen is not a subtle wizard. And again, this is a story that is really not about having a super subtle or sophisticated plot. It's about how you get there, and it's about having fun on the way. But he does this, and the Dark Bamf falls apart into hundreds of tiny Bamfs. This is where all the dude Bamfs have gone. They have been turned into the giant Bamf in the vague vein of the gnomes in the first episode of Gravity Falls. Yeah, that's true. And this will come back later in Amazing X-Men when the Bamfs and the Dark Bamfs return when Nightcrawler's resurrected. Uh. Yeah. Now, he's already saved the princess. 
Now he finally for real beats the evil sorcerer and he still can't get back home. He's trying to get out of there. He teleports to another world. This one is, uh, I forgot to look up the multiversal designation, but it's a world of Wild West dinosaurs, which is now my favorite place in the multiverse. I want to see an entire series set in a world like that. He is threatened by what appears to be a cartoon Allosaurus with a cowboy hat named Cretaceous Sam. And so he teleports out of there and ends up in the world from Bizarre Adventures where this all started years ago. This is a world that is populated by a bunch of ladies who briefly worshipped first Nightcrawler and then Vanisher as gods, I believe. But one of them goes by the name of Seven is an oracle. She's a cartoony old lady stuck in a TV screen. And what she tells him is basically that the power was inside him all along, that he's still got dark void energy on him from the original well at the center of time. And that dark force is what's been teleporting him around. And he just basically has to will himself home and it'll get him there. And so he does, and he's back in the main universe, and Ilyana and Kitty are very relieved to see him, of course. And there's some brief denouement in which we learn that Ilyana owns a prodigious collection of Playgirl magazine. Yeah, she's like, hey, you got to tell me about that part where your clothes disappeared. And he's like, you're too young. And Kitty's like, you should see your collection on Playgirl. Yeah, and that's it. That is the wrap-up of the series. And you know, not a lot goes on here. You are in it for the journey and for the tone, but this is, in terms of alignment of intent and execution, I think one of the best self-contained X-Men stories that's ever been done. Now that said, if you're an X-Men fan who really can't abide pure comedy and you need some drama to it, this might not be for you because it is basically purely ridiculous from start to finish. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. It goes out of its way to be fun. And it's fun in a breath of fresh air in an era where X-Men is overwhelmingly dark and grim and miserable. This is Nightcrawler in his element. If you're not super familiar with the character, or if you came into comics during the time when Nightcrawler was basically all about being tortured, miserable, and on and off in divinity school, you should read this because it's a great grounding in his roots and in what made him so appealing when he first appeared. Absolutely. Marvel, please put this on Unlimited. A lot of people would be very happy. Now, speaking of awesome characters and things that have been largely swept under the rug, let's talk about Iceman. So I didn't know what to expect going into this series. I just knew it was a largely forgotten miniseries about Iceman back when he was on the new Defenders. And wow, this shit is bananas. Yeah, I mean, I have plumbed the depths of my critical and creative lexicon, and I think actually bananas pretty much covers it. So this is from 1984. It was right around uh, when Life Death was going on in X-Men, when the Cloak and Dagger arc was going on in New Mutants. And during these days, uh, Iceman was on the new Defenders, right? He was. He'd been on the Champions before the new Defenders. He'd just been out of superheroing for a little bit between X-Men and that. So, yeah, this is filling in some of the gaps for X-Fans. Now, this is written by J.M. DeMattis. He was actually the creator of Team America. He didn't write the series, but he was the one that made them. Those glorious motorcycle dudes from early New Mutants. These are specifically the five motorcycle guys whose collective mutant power is to turn into a sixth motorcycle guy. Well, to make one anyway. Yeah, he's done tons of Marvel work. He was probably most notable for Captain America. Um, and he actually did a, a small run of X-Factor in the 90s after Peter David. Now, Alan Kupperberg is the artist. He was probably most prominent in the X-Universe for doing the one-shot of Noxio the Clown versus the X-Men. He also worked on a bunch of newspaper strips, and he drew the Dragonlance short. And man, this series is quite something. I mean, Dematis has actually gone on record, quote, It was my idea, so there was no one to blame but myself. I'll just say that it was a mistake, and if the series made any sense whatsoever, it was due to editor Bob Bedansky. That was a case where the editor's input was really needed, and Bob was a big help. Honestly, I think DeMattis is being too hard on himself, because yes, this series is bizarre and doesn't fully make sense, but it's so rare we get a comic that focuses that much on Iceman, and it's this much fun to read. I really enjoyed reading this. this was, I didn't know anything about it going in. I was completely blind, and uh, man, every issue, I was just smiling with my eyebrows attempting to twist themselves into a knot from confusion. 
Yeah, I mean, you started reading this in the office when I was in the living room, and I remember you yelling, what the hell is even happening? Oh, yeah, it's great. Um, It is charming. It actually reminds me, not really in tone and letter, but at least in its place as a weird, wonderful, forgotten canon, kind of of the Beauty and the Beast miniseries. I can see that, yeah. I mean, they're both series that not a lot of people have read. They're both very tonally different from a lot of the stuff that was going on at the time, and they both have a lot to recommend them. Yeah, I mean, I think Beauty and the Beast is objectively maybe a bit more interesting, but this has its buried gems as well, so I guess let's dive in. Like I said, this is during a period when Iceman was on the New Defenders, and it opens with him actually taking a break from that to go to a family reunion, just, you know, ice sliding around Long Island. Now, I can't remember whether we've met Iceman's family here before. We definitely did in his origin story, but his relationship with them is not great. Yeah, it's very strained between him and his parents. They're very disappointed. They want him to just be sort of a normal young adult, to go to college, to become an accountant, to do the white picket fence thing, basically. They're really, really uncomfortable with the fact that he's a mutant, to the point that actually something you see a lot in context of Iceman coming out in all-new X-Men number 40 in a lot of the articles about that is references back and the fact that you can really heavily read a lot of Iceman's interaction with his parents as parents who are really uncomfortable with having a gay kid. Yeah, now I don't think that was intended at the time, but it's definitely possible to look at it that way. Well, in context of the mutant allegory and the way it's been played, whether and to what extent it was intended as literal versus allegorical and whether to what extent it's, you know, what you do anytime something changes in canon, which is retroactive rationalization, is unclear, but it's definitely text that can be read very, very much with that filter and lends itself very naturally to that. Anyway, Iceman's, you know, sliding around, uh, sort of thinking to himself about how conflicted he's feeling. And uh, after briefly running into his cousin Mary and talking about family... Who I guess is it knows he's Iceman. He's out to, to her and I think to his parents and none of the rest of his extended I believe family. so, yeah. But he runs into a beautiful, beautiful girl who he attempts to impress with some sort of ice architecture tricks, falls on his ass, and uh, is dismayed to find her running away. Now... He spends most of this series in his New Defenders uniform, which it's worth noting is just briefs and boots. Right, like he's wearing tidy whities with an X belt and white boots, and that's it. And I mean, the dude is cut as hell, so you could do worse than to be showing that stuff off if you got it. But it's still really ridiculous. And like, even if it's officially like his uniform briefs, so it's not quite like X-Factor angel level ridiculous. The boots kind of look like socks, too. And so the general impression is Iceman perpetually out of his element in crises in his underwear, <laughs> which honestly kind of works. I think it does. Yeah. But yeah, so he, you know, he's he's sad that this pretty girl has run away. He makes a mental note to keep after her and goes to change into his normal clothes just in a random nearby yard, which prompts this old woman to just yell, help, help. There's a godless communist undressing in my backyard. This is sort of a running motif in the first couple episodes that, you know, everyone who is out of the ordinary is assumed to be a communist. Well, you know, I guess it was the era for it. This is 1984. This isn't like high McCarthyism. No, no. So after escaping the anti-communist woman, maybe she's a member of HUAC, I don't know, heads to his family's house and his parents are really, really nice, but then immediately start laying into him about, you know, why couldn't he just be more normal? Why couldn't he do things in a more standard fashion? Why couldn't he not be a superhero? And his other relatives show up and say, well, you know, are you an accountant yet? What are you doing with yourself? Have you made anything of yourself yet? Why aren't you married? Your, your friends are all married. Your brother's married. Have you produced any grandkids? Why didn't you go to Harvard? You should have gone to Harvard, Bobby. They're, they're not actually, I'm just making this up, but the rough family reunion equivalent of this stuff. So during this whole reunion, it's mentioned at one point that Iceman's father's side of the family is Catholic and his mother's is Jewish. So this is a family reunion dynamic that you can speak to fairly directly, yeah? Uh, well, not the Catholic part specifically, but the mixed faith and Jewish mother, yeah. The kind of gentle, we just want what's best for you, honey, guilt tripping that's on that side of the family. Yeah, I've, I can only speak to my own experience, but I've absolutely been there. Oh man, are we going to tell Miles' mom anecdotes? 
Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I guess we could. Yeah. Oh, I know exactly the one you're thinking of. Okay. So um, when we were in high school, I had somewhat turbulent teen years and so stayed with Miles's family a fair lot. And so this would have been the summer before senior year. Your brother came out via a letter from summer camp. And I remember this distinctly because it was like eight o'clock in the morning and we were half asleep and we were eating breakfast. And your mom walks into the dining room. And she's like, so I was thinking, you know, I'm fine with Xander being gay. As long as you two give me some grandchildren. We're like, what, 16 or 17? And we're just like, can we at least have breakfast first? Ah, family. <laughs> yeah, she is lovely. I will say, I actually, I'll say, um, comparing her to your mother makes me like Bobby's mother more just because your mother is delightful. Yeah, she is. But yeah, I have none of these experiences. Actually, I also have, you know, Bobby's actually fairly direct distribution with the parents switched. But uh, the Jewish half of my family is super chill and the Catholic half of my family is super lapsed. So it works out pretty well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Bobby's just getting more and more fed up with all these expectations being put on him. And he eventually does storm out after yelling at an uncle who's like, yeah, so I hear you're not going to be an accountant. Let's talk about that. And runs into the pretty girl from before who we learn is named Marge and doesn't recognize him since he was in his ice form before. Now, they have a heart to heart. They really connect. But unfortunately for them, this is an Iceman miniseries, and that means that there will be supervillains, two of whom choose just that moment to attack Marge's house. Yeah, so these villains, and we've seen them foreshadowed earlier in the comic, but they're basically the supervillain equivalent of uh, Bert and Ernie if Bert and Ernie were intergalactic bounty hunters. Huh. Um, they're called, respectively, The Idiot and White Light. And so they get in this big fight, and Bobby's like, oh, crap, uh, Marge, you gotta run, keep your family safe, I will protect you. So he gets in a big fight with these two guys, you know, icing up immediately. Marge runs into the house, and she and her family dive into this big portal in their closet. Unbeknownst Iceman, of course. Okay. So he eventually does manage to subdue the villains, but not before the house is completely demolished. And so the issue ends with Ralph Raditz, the disapproving cop who we earlier saw in the issue, showing up in his bathrobe like, I got you this time. And Iceman's family, the distant ones who didn't know he was Iceman, being like, oh, my God, is that what he really looks like? And him just sitting there with his head on his uh, hand, just saying, oh, God, seriously, why me? So Iceman's life basically sucks as we jump into issue two. Yeah, and he manages to talk his way out of getting arrested by saying that White Light and the Idiot were commie spies. And, you know, he's a superhero, so he's got a good reputation at this point, even if he is a mutant. Right, and he's going back through the wreckage of the Smith's house and discovers a weird mechanical box that he doesn't recognize. And he decides that the thing to do with this is just to bring it home with him because Iceman has poor decision-making skills. Yeah, and as he heads in, he's, you know, in his briefs de-icing uh, after coming in through the window and his parents show up and they get into a brief tiff and his father runs off and Iceman's mother is like, your father's not well, Bobby. His heart isn't as strong as it used to be. This kind of aggravation, it could kill him. Please, Bobby, don't kill your father. And then she walks away. Wow, Mrs. Drake. Yes, yeah, seriously. You sure did. The thing with the guilt tripping, there's a lot of that going on here. And so he's like, oh man, I just, I can't get along with my parents. I just, I can't see them as real people. They're just these larger than life figures. I wish I'd known them when they were my age. And at which point the weird metal box he found starts going wonka, 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 and he vanishes. Now we cut away at this point to England in 1892, which the captions describe to us as days of innocence, days of simple dreams. And I kind of want to talk about that description. Yeah, there was a lot of terrible shit going on then. Right? I feel like people who were describing that as an idealized form of England were basically John Ruskin. And there is a limit to how much you should trust someone who has threatened to prove their virility in a civil court. I feel like that's a truly amazing and or terrible porno premise. Like they take him up on it? Exactly. Okay. I, I, on, on one hand, I think that's the best concept of ever. On the other hand, I literally cannot think of anyone, including me, who would want to watch John Ruskin do anything sexual. I, I mean, I feel like you have to watch it at least once to say you did, right? 
Yeah, no, no one wants to watch that, Miles. No one wants to watch anything involving John Ruskin and sex ever, probably including John Ruskin and definitely including me. <laughs> well, fair Which enough. may be the only thing that I specifically have in common with John Ruskin, I hope. But what's going on in England of 1892 is that all of a sudden we see Marge and her family, but they're all like, you know, of that era, hanging out, doing of that era things, when the giant flat screen TV in their living room starts making that wonka 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 sound. So of that era is kind of a relative term here, huh? It absolutely is. They see that Iceman is being sent throughout time or space or something, and Marge's family's like, hey, you gotta help this dude. He was just protecting you. And she says, well, fine, I will. And Iceman all of a sudden appears in 1942. Now, we know it's 1942 because, A, he asks a friendly cop what year it is, but B, there are posters for Captain America war bonds. He is trying to get away from this police officer who turns out to be the dad of the one who was harassing him in the present, who actually shoots him and he collapses in an alley at the feet of two strangers. Who turn out to be George McFly and Lorraine Baines. Because it is motherfucking back to the future time. They're not actually George and Lorraine, but they are Bobby's 20-something parents. And yeah, so they sort of nurse him uh, back to health and basically immediately start humanizing themselves. Iceman's father is talking about how Bobby reminds him of his brother who died in the war and he himself tried to get into the war, but he's got this heart murmur so he couldn't so it's basically that thing bobby was saying about wishing he could see his parents as people it's exactly that like here are all their struggles and their hopes and their dreams and they're telling him about them unfortunately for bobby he has brought with him the magical box that took him through and someone else has keyed in on that box as well and that is a cosmic bounty hunter number three working for the same big bad presumably that being Kali, who's sort of an armored lady riding a bunch of bugs with an army and she attacks bobby who goes out to fight them and his parents, who don't know they're his parents, go to help. And actually, Iceman's father is smashed against a wall by Kali and almost killed. Almost killed. And then he does actually die because he's got a heart problem, at which point Iceman blinks out of existence. And that's halfway through the miniseries. So we mentioned how Nightcrawler changes tone halfway through when he ends up on Earth 5311, the Kitty's fairy tale world. Iceman changes tone even more drastically when he's erased from existence halfway through. And from here, oh man, I don't even know how to describe a lot of this stuff. I like that you described erasure from existence as a change in tone. Well, that's how this book works. So Iceman's like falling into blackness at the beginning of issue number three, and he falls into a crib. And there's his parents, and they're doting on him like he's a baby, and he can just say like baby stuff like goo goo gaga. Yeah, and he spends about the first third of the issue going through sort of a nightmarish montage of surrealist takes on what would have been his life had he been born, which he now hasn't. Yeah, and so, like, you know, there's baby Iceman, and his mother picks him up, and they're dancing, and he turns into an actual baby, but then he freezes her, and she shatters, and his father's disappointed, and he goes off, and he finds Professor Xavier, who he's carrying around, and then Xavier gets shot, and Bobby's like, but who would shoot a nice bald cripple like you? Why, the mutant haters of America, that's who? So he finds the X-Men. And Beast is just yelling out stuff like, Exigency, Parabolic, Impecunious. We're the X-Men, and we're mutants just like you are. We'll never be accountants either, says Cyclops. And Marvel Girl's just singing, By the time I get to Phoenix. And yeah, it goes through similar sequences with the Defenders and the Champions. Um, Darkstar rejects him for being a capitalist. And finally, he is swept up by the Defenders and kicked to the foot of a dude who basically looks like Evil Orko from He-Man. Yeah, this guy's character design is weird. He's sort of in this big pink spiderweb cloak and hood with a skull belt and a lot of red. I mean, he looks like an interdimensional cosmic fundamental force who went, okay, what can I put together using only the Halloween aisle? Exactly. You know, he's got the printed spiderweb situation going on and the jagged but not actually ripped looking borders. And again, exactly Orko's palette. 
And this, we learn very quickly, is Oblivion. Like, you know, the very concept of Oblivion personified. Now, people who have read more cosmic stuff in Marvel at the time, like, say, Doctor Strange or whatever, they're familiar. You know, we have Eternity, we have Death, we have all these cosmic entities. And uh, Oblivion is basically, for practical purposes, their sibling, although we haven't seen him before. This miniseries marks his first appearance. He's going to show up again on and off, I think, most frequently fighting the Great Lakes Avengers. <laughs> yup. And so he talks to Bobby. He's like, all right, so you don't exist anymore, which means you're kind of in my domain and everything around you everything here is something i've created to sort of make a world for myself because my default state is nothing and marge was the same thing marge was a part of myself i spun off into an individual to have somebody to talk to and she's rebelled and here's the deal bobby you don't exist nothing you did matters therefore you have no place in the world if you ever want to exist again in any capacity find marge bring her back because she's a part of me well, it seems like the thing to do based on what's worked for Bobby is to send Marge back in time to before her creation where she'll run into oblivion in the streets and discover that he's actually a pretty nice fella. But, you know, that doesn't happen. So Aww. instead, Bobby's like, well, I don't know what, um, okay. And he gets sent to this really idyllic Norman Rockwell-like town where, you know, nobody cares that he's a mutant or that he's running around in basically superhero underwear. And he meets up with Marge, who's like, hey, so how's it going? And he says, I know what's going on with Oblivion. She's like, hey, don't worry about that. Listen, just stay here. Be happy with me. We can just be normal people together. It's going to be great. Right. I've made this perfect world for us. I've made it totally from scratch. It's going to be the best thing ever. And Bobby's like, well, I'd really like to exist. And so he's like, no, you have to come home with me. And she gets angrier and angrier and then basically turns into this sort of cosmic-y looking, oblivion-looking woman who identifies herself as Mirage. And the entire town just winks out and it's just a void outside of them. And they get in a big fight and she's really going back with herself like, no, you see, this is this is what I don't want to become, exactly what I'm doing here, but no, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, she becomes more and more like Oblivion and she's growing larger and larger and she's gradually basically developing Oblivion's color palette as well. And finally, she kills him again more. And they appear at the feet of Oblivion himself in Oblivion's realm. And at this point, I don't even know how to describe this final issue. Like, it's basically just them yelling at each other, Oblivion saying, Bobby, you don't matter, and Bobby saying, yes, I have to matter. And Marge being like, I didn't ask to be born, you're not my real dad. And so Marge is eventually subsumed into Oblivion until they're just sort of in this form, after Bobby does take out the original form of Oblivion using his ice powers, that's Marge's form, but kind of talking in both their voices. And this composite Oblivion kind of consumes Bobby and says, hey, nothing you've done is meaningful, you don't exist you never existed and he finds the one thing that is sort of what he holds on to to hold on to his own existence to hold on to meaning in this world that oblivion says has no meaning and that's love yeah so basically bobby's second superpower is existentialism yeah he says what i do know is that i love my parents and i love the world and as much as my parents and i fight that shit is real and no i do exist i refuse to accept what you're saying as much as i don't really know who i am or what i want and i go back and forth i do know that much and oblivion's like yeah okay yeah oblivion's like hey i didn't really account for this well all right and Oblivion gets ready to send Bobby back into a timeline where his father didn't die. And I love the way this happens because there's like, you know, Oblivion's male older form and his female younger form, that being Marge. And they're just sort of dancing as father and daughter, as brother and sister, as lovers. They're, they're as waltzing. kind of the same person. And like, it's got creepy incestuous overtones. But if you consider the fact that they're also the same person to begin with, maybe I don't know if that makes it more or less incestuous, actually. I'm not really sure. 
But yeah, cosmic entities are different from us. They are. But they send Bobby to a version of the timeline where he does exist, where his father did not get killed by this lady on a giant bug. So this fascinates me because what it basically means is that every story that's taken place after this takes place in a splinter universe. I think that's true. I think that means that Earth 616 is a different universe than it was before the Iceman miniseries. All right. So this is interesting. And I wonder how this matches up with the multiversal numbering system that was being introduced roughly concurrent to this, I think, actually, in Marvel UK, whether you can actually rationalize it as a separate timeline. I think very possibly, actually. Yeah. So Bobby reconciles with his parents. And I love that the way he gets back, though, basically, is by doing the same thing with Oblivion that like um, Storm did with Rachel Summers or that Rachel Summers did with the Beyonder or that more recently in current comics Storm did with Kenji just doing the like look at all of humanity look at all this stuff you didn't account for <clears throat> I just want you to follow your heart that's a line between Cyclops and Dracula. But it operates on the same basic principle. I suppose it does. And it really never gets old. Like, I feel like in, in terms of perfect moments of X-Men, Cyclops solemnly telling Dracula to follow his heart is really high up there. <laughs> yup. And so, yeah, Bobby's like, hey, parents, let's just reconcile. Let's get past all this bullshit, all this expectation, and just remember that we love each other. And they say, well, okay. And then they're still really shitty to him when he comes back in another series years later. Yeah, well, different writer. And they're kind of racist about his girlfriend, too. They are. Yeah, the series ends on a happy note and kind of an uplifting one. Like, as bizarre as this series is, and it's really bizarre. Yeah, it's really strange. There's a lot of really intensive tonal whiplash, but it's kind of charming. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, this is going to be a really hard one to track down, but if you can, I recommend reading it. It's fun, it's weird, and I enjoy both of those qualities. You know, I think you kind of nailed it. It's more enjoyable than it is good, but it's definitely enjoyable. And here's the thing about the series. I think, you know, Dematis said he didn't really know what he was doing going into it. And what I would love is to see a different writer basically revisit it. And actually, specifically, I was thinking about this. I'd really like to see Jeff Parker do this set in the first class universe, because I think it's something that he could take and make work really well, because he's very good at the stories that are sort of ridiculous and all about the old school weird, but also all about having a lot of heart. Yeah, that could work really well. So there you have it. Two miniseries of the 80s focusing on uh, very charming characters that you will probably never be able to find. So hopefully we have explained them well. So between these two series, I think we kind of have one ideal miniseries because the first half of Iceman was awesome and the second half of Nightcrawler was awesome. So Icecrawler. Or Nightman, I guess. So Johnny Domino, a saxophone player who was struck by lightning, tuning his brain into the frequency of evil? Nope. I believe that's already been covered. Nightman is an actual Marvel character. Like There was a short-lived TV show and everything, and it is, it's quite something. I refuse to accept this. No, no, it's phenomenal. He can fly, he's got prototypical police equipment, and he plays, like, easy-listening jazz saxophone, and every episode, either his dad or his best friend gets kidnapped. So, that said, you've got questions. Okay, so Magical Girl Wanda Maximoff asks on Tumblr, what would your ideal live-action adaptation of X-Men be like? Would it be a movie, TV show, or web series? And what things would you like to see covered in said live-action adaptation? Now, I think I actually mentioned this in episode 51, which was our Emerald City Comic Con special, but I would love to see an old-school, low-budget BBC Excalibur. That would be amazing. I also think Ecstatics is kind of the cheat answer here because it's already based around the premise of reality TV show, but I think it would be a fairly delightful one. There's one series, though, I think that we both keep coming back to as an ideal adaptation. Yeah, and for me, that would be Peter David's X factor either the x-factor investigations run he did for a long time or the more recent all-new x-factor i think that would make a great like hour-long weekly sort of dramedy very much in the tone of angel actually see i kind of disagree with you i think yeah that x-factor investigations would but i think almost every x-factor series after the first one so any of the peter davids would be best suited to a series of youtube shorts 
Huh, interesting. Like really, really short, almost sketch comedy built around the premise, because if there's ever a team that was suited to it. That could work really well also. I feel like what this question is kind of fishing for, though, um, and what people have been asking us a lot about is the recently announced New Mutants movie. Yeah, so um, obviously that's a thing, and obviously uh, I'm very happy because I love New Mutants a lot. You know, people have been talking about what characters do you want. Honestly, I don't think that's important. I think you could do it with any of the characters in the comic or even make some new ones. I think what you do need to do is make sure that you have a diverse cast. Now, I'm not just talking in terms of ethnicity or national origin. I'm talking in terms of ideas. I'm talking in terms of personalities. Why New Mutants works is that we have all these characters who are so different from one another forming this kind of surrogate family. They're all kinds of brothers and sisters and boyfriends friends and girlfriends. And I think if you can capture that, if you can capture how intense adolescence is, sort of with all of the conflicts they have uh, as far as supervillains or whatever being really a metaphor for that, that would work. I mean, basically do it Whedon style, have everything be really melodramatic in a way that works and have the viewers able to see people who are different from themselves, racially, religion, personality, whatever, as people that they can still empathize with. That's the strength of New Mutants. But I don't think Buffy is a good analogy because that's such a fundamentally serial story and franchise. Overlooking the great, terrible old movie, the Buffy that we usually refer to when we refer to Buffy is a really fundamentally long-form and long-term serial work, and those relationships develop over time. I think my main consideration with New Mutants is that I want to see a good movie. I am more concerned with them telling a story that captures the spirit and the feel of the old stuff, but doesn't attempt to exactly translate something that is very, very fundamental to one format into another. And I know that's going to mean characters changing, that's going to mean story details changing, and I am okay with that. I would rather see that happening, and I'd rather see something, again, that's sort of true to the spirit and the feel. I think Scott Pilgrim is a good example of a comics adaptation done right that doesn't, you know, hew to precisely the letter. And I think that's really the way you'd have to go to do New Mutants well, because, again, it's a fundamentally very, very long-form, very sprawling story. Fair point. All right. Doug Locked asks on Tumblr, We know that Nightcrawler's bamfs smell strongly of sulfur from the brimstone dimension. The problem with this is that sulfur dioxide is poisonous, and we frequently see Kurt teleport into confined spaces where this could be a huge issue. Even if he's immune to it himself, other people would still be at risk. I was wondering if this has ever been addressed, or if I should just take a deep breath and recite the MST3K mantra. Well, you do have to take a deep breath for this explanation, because I'm going to reference probably the uh, most reviled X-Men story ever, that being the Draco. God fucking damn it. Yeah, afraid so. So in the Draco, we find out that Kurt is actually teleporting through this other dimension called the Brimstone Dimension, kind of like what Ilyana Rasputin does going through Limbo, but instantaneous. And the deal with the Brimstone Dimension is that there was this group of ancient angel-like mutants called the Chearafim, and they imprisoned their enemies, a group of ancient demon-like mutants called the Neafem there, and apparently most of demonic-looking teleporters, so like Kurt, Abyss, Kiwi Black, people like that, they're all Neafem descendants who were kind of bred to eventually teleport the Neafem out of the Brimstone dimension. God fucking damn it. Yup. Therefore, the Brimstone dimension isn't exactly sulfur. I get the impression it's just something like sulfur, because, you know, all these people, demonic though they may be, have been living there for like, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. So I'm going to say that even if it smells really bad, my personal canon for that is that it's not actually sulfur, so it's not actually poisonous. Sure, why not? Alternately, you can just entirely ignore the existence of the Draco and yeah, repeat to yourself, it's just a comic, I should really just relax. <laughs> so anyway, we are entirely listener-supported and one of the rewards that our listeners can get uh, if they become our Patreon supporters is thanks in a variety of voices. So let me turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Can you justify what you've done, Rick Sorrow? Your mind may be made up, but in your heart lingers a shard of doubt. And now I'll hand it off to Oblivion. 
Do not tremble, Ian Fabry and Dave Barbs. Though yourselves must become one with me who gave you life, it is as all things must be. Growth and death, meaningless in their necessity, continue ever on. Why must you hurt me by resisting? Why couldn't you have become doctors or lawyers, or at least married nice cosmic elementals and made me proud? Six millennia of labor and this is what I get as thanks. Sometimes I don't know what's wrong with cosmic forces these days. You're sort of veering into my territory there, man. <laughs> anyway, that's all the time we have for today. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. You should also check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much, much more. This podcast is totally listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by fine folks like the ones we just thanked. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be taking a break from the old stuff and taking an up-close look at X-Men 92 with writers Chris Sims and Chad Bowers, who can hopefully answer the age-old question, does a mall baby chili fries? 